Amen. Let's pray together. Father, would you speak to us now? Would you teach our hearts to rely completely on you and cause us to be those who experience your glory all the day, who know that your righteousness is on high and that your mighty acts of salvation cannot be numbered. Lord, we love you and we pray that you would use the passage before us to make us pleasing to you and to preserve us to the end. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Last night, Jill and I had the privilege of sitting with Bill and Kelly Housley, uh, who have been for 12 years or so now in Papua New Guinea, and they've, they've reduced a, a language that previously was unwritten to writing, and then they've They've begun the process of translating the Bible, and they brought the gospel to these people who had never heard it before, and a church is, is there, and along the way, um, the, the ministry has recognized that um, Bill is wise and godly, and so he has been advanced, and, and um, he's now in a, a kind of director's role with the ministry, and as we talked with them... Um, all of these messes that we never would have imagined uh, start coming out. I mean, the, life is messy. Life on the mission field is messy. Life between missionaries is messy. And David's life was messy. And I would invite you to look this morning at Psalm 70, and we'll look at Psalms 70 and 71, and we'll see David's response to some of the mess that he had to deal with. If you were paying attention, as uh, Matt read, you might have noticed that Psalm 14, verses seven, Psalm, I'm sorry, Psalm 40, verses 13 through 17, sound a lot like Psalm 70. It's almost exactly the same. And I think there's a reason for that. I don't think that's accidental. Why would, why would, Someone, I don't know who did this, maybe David did it, maybe a later inspired prophet did it, but why would someone take some verses from Psalm 40 and then basically repeat them as a new psalm in Psalm 70? Well, I think if we, if we think about the way that the psalms are set next to one another, we might get some insight into what's going on. So you may remember that at the end of book one of the Psalms, which is Psalms 1 through 41, at the end there, that's where we find the end of Psalm 40. And in previous verses of Psalm 40, there's a kind of transition where um, David is, is talking about sacrifice and offering in Psalm 40, verse 6, that God did, did not delight in. And he seems to be specifically referring to Saul's sacrifice. If you remember, um, there was an occasion where Saul was told to go and uh, put some people under the ban, and he didn't do that. He, he saved some of their animals, and he sacrificed them, and God was not pleased with that sacrifice. And then David goes on to say in Psalm 40, verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of book it is written of me. And it's like there's a, a transition from Saul to David. And as we were moving through those psalms, I think there are a number of features that would indicate that that broadly speaking, what's happened as we move through the Psalms, 
matches what happens as we move through David's life in the books of Samuel and Kings. So right at the beginning of book 2, which is Psalm 42, you have this set of psalms that are of the sons of Korah. And these sons of Korah, these are guys that David installed over the worship of God at the house of God after he brought the ark into Jerusalem. So it's like as you move through book, th- book one of the Psalms, you're moving through the period of David's life when he was opposed by Saul. And then as you move into book two, this is the period when he was installed as king, when the ark was brought into Jerusalem. And then if you remember what happened at the end of his life, it's kind of like what happened at the beginning. Because at the end of David's life, in the same way that Saul had opposed him, first Absalom and then his son Adonijah opposed him. And I'm inclined to think that right here at the end of book 2 of the Psalms, which uh, book 2 goes through Psalm 72, right here at the end of book 2, Psalm 40, those verses from uh, verses 13 through 17 are quoted to, to say to us, Hey, you remember the mess that David was in before he became king? He was in a similar kind of a mess at the end of his reign. And and when you go and read 1 Kings 1 and 2, what you see is that one of David's sons, Adonijah, tried to seize the kingdom for himself while his father was still alive. And David had to intervene, and he had to send uh, the priest and the prophet to go and anoint, not Adonijah, but Solomon as king to ensure that the one whom God has cho- had chosen to be king, Solomon, would indeed be enthroned. And that seems to be reflected, I think, in the way that if you look at Psalm 72, it's a psalm of Solomon. And then at the end of Psalm 72 in verse 20, we read the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So in Psalm 72, it seems what we have is a prayer by David, perhaps, of Solomon, and he's saying, Give the king your justice, O God, as he hands the kingdom off to Solomon. So it looks to me like in the same way we transition from Saul to David at the end of book one, moving into book two, at the end of book two, moving into book three, we're going to transition from David to Solomon. And so at the end of his life, David is doing the same thing he was doing at the end of the period before he was throned enthroned as king. That is, he's calling on the Lord in the way that we read of here in Psalm 70. So, so if you look with me at Psalm 70, the superscription says to the choir master of David, and then the ESV renders this next line for the memorial offering. But other translations translate that phrase for the memorial offering as for causing remembrance. So if you're looking at like the New American Standard, I think, or the New King James, you might have something like for causing remembrance. And then we have this repeated psalm. And, and I think the point of the superscription is, hey, remember where David was right before he became king. And now here we are again. And he's praying these same words in Psalm 70 that he prayed back in Psalm 40. Uh, what that does, I think, is it teaches us that there are these kinds of patterns in David's life. Patterns that, that, that look like this. He goes through suffering to be enthroned as king. And then he goes through more suffering before the enthronement of his greater son, greater in some respects, Solomon, he did get to build the temple, is enthroned as king. And then that's a pattern that we know is going to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, who, who said in Luke 24, was it not necessary for the Messiah first to suffer and then to enter into his glory? 
So I think we have these, these patterns that we're urged to remember in the superscription of Psalm 70, where David prays in verse 1, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Uh, the repetition of the make haste, make haste, make haste. It joins with the meaning of the phrase to add urgency, doesn't it? Hurry, David is saying. I need you. Hurry, now. And we all face situations where we're, we're going to pray this way. We're all going to be confronted with suffering that makes us want to cry out to the Lord to say, bring this to an end. Make this stop. Fast. Hurry. And that's what David is, is modeling for us here. Notice how what he says at the beginning, make haste to help me, in verse 1, is matched by verse 5. David says in verse 5, I am poor and needy. And if, if I'm right about what's happening here and the, um, the psalm is mirroring his life, then we can think of David, an old man. And 1 Kings 1 tells us that somebody got the bright idea. He was cold, he couldn't keep himself warm, and somebody had the bright idea, well, let's let him, get him a, a young lady and put, him in, put her in, and, and he, was, he, he couldn't be warmed by her. And he, the Bible says he did not know her, so he's incapacitated. And then when Adonijah tries to seize the kingdom... David doesn't know that it's happening. So he's old, he's frail, he doesn't know what's going on in the kingdom. And he says, I am poor and needy. This idea of a helpless old man, look at Psalm 71 verse 9, where David is going to pray, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. And then again in verse 18 of Psalm 71, so even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me. These psalms seem to be placed at the end of David's life when he's, he's declining and failing. But look back at 70 verse 5 and how he's saying in the second line there, Hasten to me, O oh God. You are my help and my deliverer. O oh Lord, do not delay. So uh, same things at the beginning. Hasten, help, deliver. At the end of Psalm 70, verse 5, hasten, help, deliverer. So that the beginning of Psalm 70 matches the end of Psalm 70. And then the middle parts also match in a way. Verses 2 and 3 are about David's enemies, and verse 4 is about David's friends. So verses 2 and 3, uh, these ideas are going to be elaborated upon in Psalm 70, Psalm 71, sorry. David says in Psalm 70, verse 2, Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. So David wants these people who are after him to be thwarted. He doesn't want them to succeed in shaming him. He wants the Lord to shame them. And we'll see this again elaborated on in Psalm 71. Look at verse 3. Let them be turned back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! So these are, these are venomous adversaries who are trying to overcome God's king. And thereby they're attacking God's kingdom. So those are David's enemies. Verse 4, he prays for his friends. May all who seek you 
rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. So, so notice how these, this psalm is really it's set up as a sort of ring composition or a chiastic structure where the first statements last, match the last statements and then the middle statements match one another. And it's as though you get the outside of the, the letter X, which is where we get this word chiasm. It's really a, a beautiful, short, literary composition communicating an urgent prayer from David. And it's also uh, teaching us that there are these patterns in his life. Patterns of persecution and suffering that give way to exaltation. And this, this repetition of the pattern in David's life causes us to anticipate more of this kind of thing in the future. This lays a foundation of expectation for more leaders. So I think what, what happened with David is he looked back on Israel's history in the scriptures and he saw, hey, this is what happened to Joseph. And this is what happened to Moses. They both, both first suffered and then they were exalted. And now this has happened repeatedly in my life. I suffer and then I'm exalted. I suffer and then my king is exalted. There seems to be something to this. And then, then we get the whole pattern fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus. So if you're here this morning and um, you're, you're skeptical about the Bible, one of the things that we believe about the Bible is that this is a divinely inspired book, a book that, that evidences a profound and even unsearchable unity. In other words, we're not going to come to the end of the ways that the Bible amazes us. So the more and more we understand about this book, we think there's going to be yet more to be seen and understood and known. And we would just invite you to behold the beauty and the glory of God on display in the book with us. And that brings us to Psalm 71, which you'll note has no superscription at the beginning. And then, as I've already noted, some of the, the statements in Psalm 70 seem to anticipate what we see in Psalm 71 so that it's as though the thoughts in Psalm 70 just flow seamlessly into Psalm 71. So look, for instance, at verse 12 of Psalm 71, where here too David says, Oh my God, make haste to help me. So that's kind of the, the idea of Psalm 70, and it's repeated there in 71.12. And then in the same way that in Psalm 70, David is praying for his enemies to be put to shame in Psalm 70, verse 2. Look at Psalm 71.1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. I'm being faithful to you. Defend me. Don't let them put me to shame. And then look down at verse 13. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace may they be covered. So verse 1, don't let me be put to shame. Verse 13, put my accusers, incidentally, the Hebrew word behind the word accusers is the word, the Hebrew word on which the name Satan is based. Let the Satans, the accusers, be put to shame. And then look at the end of the psalm, verse 24, in the middle. For they have been put to shame and disappointed. So the fact that this occurs at the beginning, this idea of being put to shame, in the middle and then at the end, it tells us, this is one of the big ideas of this psalm, this idea of, of being put to shame. And David is saying, don't let me put, be put to shame. Put them to shame, my enemies. 
and then at the end they have been put to shame. Another one of the the controlling uh, ideas of this psalm is the idea of God's righteousness. Look at verse 2. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. And then David is repeatedly going to refer to God's righteousness. Verse 15, my mouth will tell of your righteous acts. Verse 16, I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. Verse 24, my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. These two ideas are connected to one another because it's righteous of God to defend David because he's humble, he's repentant, And he takes refuge in the Lord, and it's righteous of God to defeat and confound and shame David's enemies because they're proud, they're unrepentant, they're arrogant, and they try to seize God's kingdom. So these these concepts are related to one another, and and we'll explore them further as we continue uh, through this psalm. So as we start into Psalm 71, um, here again we've got a, a repetition Because Psalm 71, verses 1 through 3, is almost a word-for-word repetition of Psalm 31, verses 1 through 3. So again, it's like words from earlier in David's life are reused at the end to say, here we go again. Here we go again. And what David is saying is what he's been saying his whole life. Wouldn't it be great to have this your testimony? Look at what David is doing in verses 1 through 3. In you... O Lord, do I take refuge? Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. You see the main thing that David is doing? The main overarching thing that David is doing is relying on the Lord. And that's the way it is all the way through the Psalms. From beginning to end, this is the way it is. Never do we come to a place in the Psalter where David says, I'm done trusting you. I'm done relying on you. You never read that. You read anguished cries, but you never read this sort of repudiation of a commitment to rely on God. There there are all kinds of messes that we find ourselves in, all kinds of difficulties that we find ourselves in. Um, In in our house this week, we've had some late nights. We've had some kids that that, uh, have had difficulty getting to sleep. And then we've had some kids that got up in the middle of the night. And and through this all, what we need, what we need is to continue to communicate. You need to trust the Lord. You need to rely on the Lord. You need to call out to Him. You need to thank Him him for every good thing you experience. Um, Look at at verse 2 again. In your righteousness, deliver me. David is appealing to God's character there. In David's prayers, his prayers are based on what he knows of God's firm commitment to rectitude. In your righteousness, deliver me. Then look at verse 3. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me. Now think about this command. And and where does David get the idea in the midst of his difficulty that God has given the command to save him? 
Here's what I would suggest. I think that David knows that God is going to issue the directive that David is to be delivered because David knows the promises that God has made to him. Right? David knows, God, you're the one who said that you would make me king through the prophet Samuel, and then you're the one who said that you would raise up my descendant as king. So I'm going to believe that. And I'm going to believe that because you've promised these things to me, you're going to issue the word to defeat these people who are wrongly opposing me. And that leads me to this conclusion. David's prayers are based on God's character and God's promises. And I would urge you to pray the same way. Pray prayers that are based on God's character and that spring from God's promises. That's what we see David doing here. And then everything, really, that David does here is a model of faithfulness for us, isn't it? Taking refuge in the Lord, calling out to the Lord, and trusting God. Praying, that, that, praying in a way that is based on God's character and God's promises. This is an important lesson for us to learn. Um, this is just a... A side note for those of you who might be taking notes, maybe want to pay special attention to this psalm. Uh, this psalm, too, I think, has one of these ring uh, uh, constructions, this chiastic uh, structure. And, and the way that this psalm is structured is the way the psalms are often structured. The opening cry for help is matched by the concluding um, paean of praise. So in Psalm 71, verses 22 through 24, you have praise from David that seems to match his opening prayer. And then we come to verse 4. And in verse 4, David says, Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. And if I'm, if I'm correct in my sort of reading of the way the Psalms uh, fit together and the flow of thought that's moving through them here, um, it's, it's Adonijah and his henchmen that David has in view here. Rescue me, O oh my God, from the hand of the wicked. I think it would be a difficult thing to come to the conclusion, as David seems to have, that Adonijah is the seed of the serpent, trying to usurp the very kingdom of God. His own son is trying to seize wickedly the kingdom of God without authorization. No prophet has anointed him king. First Kings tells us that Adonijah went to make himself king. And the same thing earlier happened with, with Absalom. And we, we, we see in the book of Samuel how that grieved David's heart. But from the way that David describes those opposed to him, it's clear that he's siding with the Lord. David's love for his children does not prompt him to redefine what goodness and wickedness are. And he cries out to the Lord, Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Think about David's youthful trust in the Lord. He, he tells Saul about how when he was a, a young man or when he was younger, he's a young man when he encounters Saul, he, he was shepherding the, the, the flock of his father. And when a lion or a bear came from my youth, 
He says in verse 6, Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. I don't think he's saying that there was some sort of um, prenatal trust that he was exercising. I think, rather, uh, what he's saying is, my life depended upon you even before I was born. You're the one who sustained me in my mother's womb, and then you're the one who brought me alive into the world out of my mother's womb, and you're the one I've trusted my whole life against the lions and the bears, against Goliath, when Saul was chasing him through the wilderness. From my youth, he says, you're my hope and my trust. And then at the end of verse 6 there, my praise is continually of you. And that, that little section, verses 4 through 6, is going to match verses 19 through 21, where David is talk, going to talk about resurrection from the dead, bodily resurrection from the dead. In verse 7, he says something that's very interesting. Psalm 71, verse 7, David says, I have been as a portent to many. A portent is a sign or an omen. And, and as I looked into the use of this word um, in, in, the, in the Old Testament, um, it's used to refer to the signs and the wonders that God did in the land of Egypt. And then it's, it starts to be used by the prophets. And Isaiah says, in Isaiah 8, verse 18, he says, I and the children whom God has given to me are signs and portents in Israel. And Isaiah had these kids. Um, so Isaiah was prophesying that Israel was about to be sent into exile. And one of his kids was named She'ar Jashub, and the name means a remnant shall return, which means we're about to be sent into exile, but God's going to bring a remnant back. And then another one of his kids is named Mahar Shalal Heshbaz, which means they're going to plunder us fast. So in other words, the army's going to conquer us, they're going to plunder us quickly, and then they're going to send us in. So Isaiah and his children are portents. So what does David mean when he says here in verse 7, I have been as a portent to many. I think he's talking about these patterns that he sees in his life that repeat patterns seen in Joseph's life and Moses' life and that he expects to be pointing forward to more of this in the future. And it's not exactly pleasant what he's going through, right? He's suffering. I've been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. This is what we want to be our testimony, isn't it? In all the difficulties of my life, when we come to the end and, and they lay us out, we want it to be said of us, in all of his difficulties, his refuge was the Lord. This is, this is how we want to live, and this is what David is saying. I'm a portent, I've suffered before being exalted, and through it all, you are my strong refuge. And then verse 8. My mouth is filled with your praise. As we talked with, with Bill and Kelly last night, it was, you know, it's, it's one of those, it's just reality, right? They're talking about all the difficulties that they deal with on the mission field. And, and they're talking about these missionaries. And, and this, this one missionary, Bill was saying, he, basically, he's just a whiner. Every time he opens his mouth, he complains. He's always got a complaint. We don't want to be that way, do we? Look at what David says there in verse 8 again. My mouth is filled with your praise. And then he goes on to say, and with your glory 
all the day. That, that word for glory, that's not this word kavod that we're kind of used to. This is a different word that speaks of God's beauty. Tif eret is the word. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your beauty all the day. The only way that's going to be true, is, uh, true of us if, is if we see him. We experience him. I don't mean literally, you know, have some vision. I mean in your mind's eye, in, in your understanding of the scripture, you come to be someone who is just dominated by God. You, you come to be someone who you can't stop thinking about the Lord. And, and you always want to recognize his power and his wisdom and his love. And so that's what you talk about. And that's what you're thinking about and meditating on. Look at, look at verse 24 where David says, My tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day. That word translated talk there is actually the same word that, that means meditate um, back in Psalm 1 when uh, it's a word that means mutter. It refers to, to someone who's, who's sort of muttering on the Torah. And, and so I think what David is saying is this is how you get to be somebody whose mouth is filled with God's praise, who, who's, whose mouth is full of God's beauty all the day. You know the scriptures. And you're muttering and meditating over the scriptures to yourself. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Verse 9, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. It's an understandable fear, but I don't think that this fear that David is articulating arises from anything in God. In other words, there's no indication in the Bible that the God of the Bible prefers young people. Praise the Lord, because we're all getting older, right? Um, where's this coming from, this idea of forsake me not when my strength is spent? I think it's coming from David's enemies. Look at verse 10. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together. So this is the Psalm 2, 1 through 3 thing again. The enemies gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. And look at what they're saying in verse 11. God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him for there's none to deliver him. So I think this idea of David being forsaken is coming from the, the enemies are lying. They're slandering him. They're saying God's done with him. This old man is useless to God. And in response, David says, don't forsake me in my old age. And so what he's doing, as he, as he speaks in verse 8, of his mouth being filled with praise and with, his, with God's glory all the day, David is responding to the slander of his enemies with worship. That's what he's doing. Look at verse 8. My mouth is filled with your praise. They're going to slander me. They're going to tell these lies about me. They're going to act like they have the advantage over me. And I'm going to respond with praise to you. And I'm going to fix my mind on your glory and beauty. And that's what's going to come out of my mouth. This is, these are the words of a heart transformed. Transformed by an experience of God. Verse 12, we come back. At this point, I think we're at the, the very center of the psalm. So I think verses 12 and 13 are the center, part, center point of the, the chiastic structure of this psalm. And look at what David wants. Oh God, be not far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. 
David is crying out for God's presence and God's deliverance. Because David has experienced, he has tasted and seen that the best way to live is in the presence of God. And the only way you want to be delivered is by God himself. I'm sure there's action that David could take. At this point in his life, from what we know of him, he's tried that path, right? He tried to fix his own circumstances on various occasions. And every time he did that, apart from the Lord, it didn't work out well. I mean, there were some things that he was doing trusting the Lord. Those things worked out fine, good. But when David tried to fix his own circumstances, apart from reliance on the Lord, it always backfired on him. Uriah winds up dead. A a census prompts the wrath of God. And so at this point, David is ready to pray, God, be not far from me. What I need is you, and what I need is your help. And then verse 13, the sort of corresponding other side of this, May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt. Um, So he wants those who deserve God's wrath to experience it. Those who have acted in shameful ways, he wants the Lord to respond by shaming them. And then verses 14 through 16, I think, match verses 10 and 11. And here again... Verses 10 and 11, this is what the enemies are saying. Here's how I'm going to respond. Verse 14, I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth, verse 15, will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. David is saying, I can't enumerate all the ways that you have saved me. And if we'll think on our lives we'll recognize that this is true in our experience as well. That on various occasions, some, sometimes I'll have the opportunity to talk about how the Lord provided for me in, se- in seminary and, and throughout the course of my life, invariably I overlook things. I always forget details. I ra- might remember this uh, occasion when, I mean, there was one occasion where um, I was out of money and um, I've told, if you've been here, you've heard me talk about this. I told some, some folks at church, they prayed for me. A guy approaches me, and he says, hey, I need somebody to take over my apartment. And I say, well, I can't pay the rent I've got. I, there's no way I can take on another apartment. And he says, well, there's no rent in this apartment. And so the Lord provided for this need by giving me a free place to live. On a, like a few weeks later, I go to my seminary box, and I open the box, and there's a note in there that somebody has called the school and has paid the remainder of my balance. And at just at the remainder of my tuition, and at just that time, uh, my car had gone into the shop and, and almost the exact amount of money. There was more money um, that was provided through this payment than I needed to spend on the car, but not by much. So, the, you know, the Lord just met the need. And I could go on and on. And, and I would forget instances of the way the Lord has provided for me. And if I started talking about all the things that the Lord has mercifully forgiven You know, ways I've sinned. There's no way I could enumerate them all. And what David is saying here is, my mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. He's saying, I'm going to testify. And their number, all the things I could talk about, is past my knowledge. And then verse 16, with the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. So I think David is saying, 
I'm going to move forward in the strength of the knowledge of what God has done and the way that that corresponds with his righteousness, his character. Verses 17 and 18, where David's going to talk about how from his youth, even to old age, verse 18, this is going to correspond to verses 7 through 9. So he says again here, verses 17 and 18, O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, if you got the King James, this is hoary head. That's a great phrase, isn't it? To hoary head, you know, this white, stiff hair up there. Oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come, which is exactly what David has done in this psalm, isn't it? David, in this psalm, and, and all the psalms, has proclaimed God's might to every generation that has lived since he did. It's amazing. And then he continues, verses 19 through 21. Um, He says, Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. I mean, imagine this. Imagine if, if righteousness could somehow be depicted, and it's this soaring, sheer face of justice that extends from the earth up into the high heavens and never stops. It's it's really a, a beautiful description of the ineffable majesty of the unerring and unmatched righteousness of God. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? And that, that phrase, who is like you, this pick, that, that's reminiscent of Exodus 15, 11. So it calls up the way that the Lord has acted on behalf of his people. Verse 20, you have made me see many troubles and calamities. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities. So you can imagine an old man reflecting on his life and contemplating the way that life is full of trouble and calamity. This is the way that, uh, that Jacob, in the, at the end of, of Exodus, when he, or, I'm sorry, uh, Genesis, when he meets Pharaoh, and he says, few and evil have been the days of my life. Life is full of toil and suffering. You have made me see many troubles and calamities. And then he says there in verse 20, you will revive me again. That word revive, that, that, that's a word that means give life. You will give me life again. He's old. He's coming to the end of his days. He's about to die. And he's saying, you're going to revive me again. Verse 20, from the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. I think he's talking about resurrection from the dead, bodily resurrection. Verse 21, you will increase my greatness and comfort me again. So David is confident that God is going to raise him from the dead. And we're confident that God will raise David from the dead when he raises all the dead because we're confident that God has raised Jesus from the dead. So so David's hope depends on what happened with his descendant. So you know, if, you, if you're here and you're visiting and you're wondering what Christianity about, is about, here's what Christianity is about. Um, there was a descendant of David uh, born to his line. He was the prophesied king, and he, 
He came not merely as a man. He was fully man, but he also came as the incarnation of the God of the Old Testament. And he lived a perfectly righteous life. And then he was crucified as a sacrifice of propitiation. God exhausted his wrath against all sin on Christ as he died on the cross to make it so that God could be merciful to those who repent of their sin. Because sin has been punished when Jesus died on the cross. And then, after he died, God raised Jesus from the dead. And we're Christians because we believe that happened. And we want you to join us in believing that happened. We're inviting you to believe that this is the way that God has accomplished salvation for the world. That he has done it through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that because of that... God is going to raise the dead, and the resurrected saints will enter into a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be no more of these troubles and calamities spoken of here in verse 20. Verse 21, David says, You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I think that's talking about this resurrection comfort. The Lord is going to um, restore everything that the locust ate And then it concludes with praise. David says in verses 22 through 24, I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. So this is his response to who God is and what God has done. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed, and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. For they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. So the enemies have been defeated and David has been delivered. And as we come to the end of this, uh, I want to say two things. I want to say first a thing again about the way that David declares himself. I, I think Psalm 70 verse 7 is really important. David says, I have been as a portent to many. He, I think he is claiming That in his life, he is foreshadowing or typifying what's going to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. That's tremendously significant. This persecuted servant of the Lord who finds refuge in God, satisfies himself with God's beauty, praises God's righteousness, and from youth to old age walks in God's ways. Is persecuted and opposed by God's enemies, but then the enemies are defeated and he is exalted. So that's the first thing I want to conclude with. And the second thing I want to do is I want to summarize the various points of application that I tried to point through throughout the sermon. So just try to, you know, go back over these and bring them out. First, from verses 1 through 3, we want to pray in accordance with God's character and promises. Your righteousness deliver me. You've given the command to save me. Second, David models here thinking about how quickly life passes. From my youth, you've been my trust. And and what we see here is that the rebellion against God goes away so quickly. It's over. There's nobody taking up the cause of Adonijah today. And and this gives us wisdom. Um, Third, we want to pray that the wicked would be shown wrong. Verse 13, may my accusers be put to shame. It's right to pray that the wicked would be exposed in their lies and schemes. 
And then fourth, and this really, this comes from verse 8. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. It comes from verse 12. O God, be not far from me. Verse 19, your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. We want to desire God's presence, and we want to be marked as people who know him, that, that we too might know that his acts of salvation are innumerable, that his beauty can occupy us all day long. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these two psalms. And Lord, we recognize that if we come to live this way, we will be better than we are now. And so we thank you for a word that will transform us. And we pray that you would do in our hearts what you did in David's. And make it true of us that your praise fills our mouth. That we're occupied with contemplation of your glory and beauty all day long. Father, we ask that you would cause us to respond rightly to this righteousness that reaches to the heavens, to this salvation that is innumerable. Make it so, we ask, Lord. And we pray that through this you would also draw those who don't know you to the glory of your great name. Cause them to see that there is more to live for than the next pleasure. There's more to seek than more money and what it can do. That knowing you surpasses all these things. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to believe and act like we know that you're going to raise the dead. And make us those that enjoy your glory in those days, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.